talk is about to begin. Hey, 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 come on in. Welcome back to Buckeye Talk, Douglas Maurice from Cleveland.com here with you in the last week before college football at least Big Ten football kind of gets started. Uh, I'm recording this Wednesday evening. I was a little wiped out. I was at the uh, All-Star Game in Cleveland on Tuesday night, and I got home really late, and I finished up some baseball stories. So I'm getting this to you later on Wednesday than I hope to, but I don't feel as bad when it's good. About an hour and 10-minute conversation with Ralph Russo, the national college football writer for the Associated Press since 2004, uh, Ralph and I, uh, have spent many games together at Ohio State in the press box, and I wanted to have him on to help put Ohio State in the national context. So next week, this podcast is not going to appear until late on Thursday night. Big Ten Media Days are next week, Thursday and Friday in Chicago. Stephen Means and I will be there covering that for Cleveland.com. Ohio State goes the first day. Uh, Michigan goes the second day. They always split up Ohio State and Michigan because they're the most, the two most interesting teams. And um, the Ohio State players go last. Um, like it's, I think it's like 6 p.m. or so um, late on, on that Thursday. So I'm not going to try to squeeze a podcast in ahead of time of that. Um, I am going to have a our annual Cleveland.com um, preseason Big Ten poll, which I'm going to start working on. We gather up the votes from everybody in the Big Ten to see uh, who they think is going to win the conference because the conference doesn't do that. But we're not going to talk about it on this pod. We'll talk about it next Thursday. But I want to bring it to you fresh from Chicago, what we just heard from the players. So if you are used to getting this on Wednesday, it'll be Thursday next week. Don't get worried, but that's what it's going to be. But right now, um, this offseason, we had a Big Ten podcast where we talked to writers from uh, – Michigan, Penn State, and Nebraska about what they thought of Ohio State football. We had on the great Phil Steele to talk about his perspective, and now we have another great national writer, uh, and we talk about Ohio State and the college football playoff. We talk about Ryan Day, uh, where he fits um, into the national scene as a football coach, and we just had a really really interesting conversation, I think. So we'll do Ralph right now. I'll come back at the end, uh, answer a few other questions from your guys, and then we'll get ready for next week when Big Ten football will be upon us. But for now, here's me talking with my friend Ralph Russo, college football writer for the Associated Press. Joined on Buckeye Talk by Ralph Russo, the incredible national college football writer for the Associated Press. Ralph has been covering college football even longer than I've been covering college football, I think. So, Ralph, thank you for joining us. And, and how long have you been covering this game now from the national level since 2004 i think is when i first got this gig but i also uh before this was in sec country uh down in mississippi covering those teams for about four or five years so we're looking at gosh i'm getting old about 20 over a little over 20 years now if you go back into my colorado days when i when i did a little bit of college sports so, yeah, I'm, I'm about two decades now. Well, you know what you're talking about, Ralph, and we're always glad to see you in Columbus when you come by for the big games. Um, so the, the thing that I always like having people like you on this podcast for is is putting Ohio State in national context. And so I, I want to do that right away. And, and I want to ask you, I don't where do you think Ohio State sits 
in the national college football picture at the moment, and they haven't played a single game with Ryan Day as the full-time head coach. We know Ryan Day was 3-0 last year on an interim basis. But just in your belief in how people think about Ohio State right now, is Ohio State still Ohio State up there in my mind with Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, and Oklahoma as one of the five top programs in college football? Or does Urban Meyer leaving automatically – move them down a level, at least in the national perception going into this season? I don't think so from a sort of a large picture, wide lens perspective, because Ohio State has has been a bulletproof program for a long, long time, right? I mean, you know, the last, what is it, the last four coaches who have coached at Ohio State, the last five, it's four Hall of Famers and Urban Meyer, right? Um, Yeah. So I, I so I don't think I don't think from that perspective Ohio State is still you know the best of the Big Ten. It's still a you know one of the four or five best programs in the country. I do think from a macro perspective, walking into this season, it is fair to say let's see what Ryan Day is going to do with this particular team. Will this particular team be able to sort of play at the level that Urban Meyer's teams have played at, which have been as great as Ohio State has been. Urban Meyer's Ohio State has been the greatest Ohio State, you could argue. I mean, even compared to the greatest of Woody Hayes, you could argue that the seven years of Urban Urban Meyer at Ohio State have been the best Ohio State has ever been. Um, So if you take that into Yeah, so if you take that perspective, I think it's fair to say we're not sure if Ryan Day's Ohio State will be as good as Urban Meyer's Ohio State because we've never seen Ohio State as good as Urban Meyer's Ohio State. But the larger picture of what Ohio State is as a program, I think it's fair to still put it up with what you have said. Now, let me also say this. Clemson and Alabama have pulled away from everybody else. Yeah, even Ohio State at this point. So even with Urban Meyer there, I think that there was still a very fair perception that Clemson and Alabama had sort of created this tier all to itself. And the next tier was Ohio State and Oklahoma. And Georgia has now entered that tier. And you could then start arguing who else should be on on that tier. And sometimes that tier moves around from year to year. So I think, again, I guess it, it depends on what perspective and how you want to frame that question. Ohio State has not lost its shine as far as it being one of the beacons of college football. But I, I think there's a lot of folks out there who are going, what, what does Ryan Day's Ohio State look like? And can it possibly even come close to what Urban Meyer's Ohio State was? I, I really want to dig in on, on again, the, your national perspective on, on Ryan Day specifically and the hire there. But let me jump to something that we, we talked about that I wanted to get into since you sort of led us there. When Ohio State beat Alabama in the first college football playoff and then went on to beat Oregon for the national title, I assumed that Ohio State was going to take the mantle as Alabama's primary challenger and that if two teams pulled away from everybody else, it was going to be Alabama and Ohio State. And to me, Clemson basically took what I thought Ohio State was going to do. Why did that happen? Why is Clemson the team that has risen up to Alabama's level? Is it just 
Dabo, like force of personality, and and just this guy is a Hall of Fame, one of the all-time great football coaches. Is there something else? And my secondary question to that is, will a, a northern team outside of that southern geog- geographical recruiting area can they do they have any hope long term of rising to that level, or are we going to see the absolute best teams in college football from here on out be exclusively in the South? Yeah, I, I I think it might be as great as Dabo is. It might simply be location, location, location. Um, and, and Ohio State, I think, is the one school you could convince me that USC, if it got its act together, could be with, with the other school. You could convince me that Texas might have the potential, though of course Texas is in the South, though it's a different type of South, right? I mean, Texas is sort of Texas. But it's um, warm. It's nice and warm there. And in USC, it's nice and warm. I think people like where it's nice and warm, right, Ralph? No, I mean, no doubt about it. And that's also where, the, again, it's, I think that we sometimes become very overly analytical of why it has happened this way when the obvious answer is just lying right there in front of you, which is uh, where are the players? The players are in the South. Now, Ohio State is in a position where there's still a lot of players in Ohio. You know, when you, when you remove the, the sort of Southern dominance and say, okay, where are the players? If you, if you sort of cut off these states, where are the players? There's a lot of players in Ohio, and Ohio State gets pretty much all of them, right? I mean, that's the other that's yeah. the secret sauce with Ohio State. A lot of players, they get them all. And, of course, where Ohio State has become, has sort of pushed its level of greatness when we talk about, like, the next level that Urban was able to take it to is it's now a national program that can go into Georgia and get big-time players and go into Florida and California and Texas and get enough big-time players. But, you know, you're still at a little bit of a disadvantage over the fact that over the, against when compared to the schools where the players are literally in the backyard. And that's, I think, part of the advantage Clemson has had. I think Clemson has also had this adv- the advantage of having now two transformative generational quarterbacks right. in Deshaun Watson and Trevor Lawrence. And as great a college player as JT Barrett was, he was never that. And as great as Dwayne Haskins was for one year, he, he was never quite what, you know, Lawrence and Watson are. So, and then you add Dabo's force of personality, though I do, I do think this whole, like, chicken and egg sort of de- debate, how much is the program structure and the location and the commitment within the program to fund and resource the vision of the great coach? How much of it is the great coach with the vision motivating the school to fund and resource his vision, right? Because you need those two things. And that's what they had at Ohio State, right? I mean, that's the reason why Ohio State, the power of Ohio State and the power of Urban Meyer became this supernova program. Now, the difference between Ohio State and Clemson, in some ways it seems vast. It's two national championships. It's two victories for against against Alabama uh, by Clemson. It's this constant, and it's also we saw them play on the field. And the last time those two programs, Clemson and Ohio State, got together, 
it was not close. But in reality, are they really that far apart? Are they really are they really 31 points better still as programs right now, Clemson and Ohio State? Right. Probably not. No, probably probably not. not. I mean, I, I mean, I, I think that there's a there's a probably a fairly small margin here between those two programs that has been really pronounced over the last few years. And, and if you were to tell me that in the next five years that Clemson wins two or two national championships, but Ohio State wins one, that doesn't seem absurd. Um, so, you know, I, I guess, I guess in, in one sense, there, there may not be that much separating Clemson and Ohio State, but it turns out that maybe that's a lot. You know, I think maybe just simply the players being in the backyard, the nicer weather, there are certain commitments that maybe Clemson has made facilities-wise, the power of the personality of Dabo. Oh, and now you have the coaching change from the, the all-time great coach in Urban Meyer to Ryan Day. Does that set back Ohio State enough so that the gap between Ohio State and Clemson now grows? But I, I'm just not sure right. how big that gap is in, in reality. It, and it's like you're leading me, you keep leading me into more interesting topics, Ralph, because I do think it's 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 just it's how you look at it. And I com- basically completely agree with everything you just said. However, Ohio State in in three of the five playoff years finished fifth, sixth and seventh in the final rankings. The 2015 team should have been in the playoff as one of the four best teams. They just lost the game they couldn't lose. The 2017 team, they thought they were making the playoff and they got edged out by Alabama for the last spot and finished fifth. Last year, um, they weren't a perfect team. Their defense was not very good, yet they were right in the playoff mix the whole time. I think part of the issue for Ohio State is that they haven't gotten, they've been just barely edged out of the playoff in a couple of these years, which which leads me to ask questions like, hey, why aren't they Clemson? And it's like, well, if they would have somehow squeezed into the playoff in any of those three years, and they were really close, they were, you know, no team in the playoff history has been as close and missed it as many times as Ohio State. May, I think you could argue in the last five years, their worst team was the 2016 team that made the playoff sort of surprisingly and won a bunch of overtime games to get there and then got smoked by Clemson. So it's I, I completely agree with you. Yet on the other hand, you know what? Like if they get in in 2017 instead of Bama and they make a playoff run, this conversation we're having is probably very different. And that might have come down to two or three votes in the committee room. Yeah, I listen, the 2015 team, you know, probably may have been the best football team in the country, uh, you yep. know, and the 2015 team didn't get the sort of benefit of the doubt that Alabama got, right? The year Alabama ends up in 20, uh, 20, 2017, 17, right? 2017, yeah. Alabama squeaks in, gets the benefit of the doubt because they have only one loss and wins the national championship. Um so I, I, we are playing with margins here that are rather thin when we're talking about – you're playing with rather thin margins, but ultimately when it comes down to like playoff appearances and rings and what happened on the field the last time Clemson played Alabama – oh, excuse me, Clemson played Ohio State, it seems like there is a rather large gap here. And I, I, my, right. my suggestion to you would be like the gap is not nearly as big 
but it is incredibly significant. Just because it's not a huge gap does not mean it's a very significant, because it's the most significant thing, right? The most significant thing is we have a trophy that you do not have. The most significant thing is we make the playoff every year you have not. So I think all you can ask of your of your football program, especially your elite football program, is be in position to make the playoff every year. If you're Ohio State, that's what you want. You want to be in position to make the playoff every year. Ohio State has been in position to make the playoff every year. This is not going to make Ohio State fans be, like, happy. This is not going to soothe the wound of not making the playoff. I'm still sure you're pissed off about not making it, and you will pour through all the reasons why you shouldn't have, and you will um, – you will be exacerbated. You will just be exasperated by that one loss to Iowa and that one loss to Purdue. And how does that happen? Because those are the games that kept us out of the playoff, and that doesn't happen to Clemson, and that doesn't happen to Alabama. So I understand it's easy to look at those small data points and make a and make a huge deal out of them and pour your heart into them and say why, 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 why are we falling short? But man. Again, this is, these are tiny margins here, and you're in the mix every year, and essentially that's what you want. And again, goes back to our original question, can Ryan Day keep doing that? Can Ryan Day's Ohio State keep being in the mix for the playoff every year? Because really it only takes one step, one more small step back to not even be in the mix. And, and I think that's an important distinction, Ralph, that we have talked about on this podcast before. It is, to me, it's not making the playoff. It's being in the mix for the playoff because the playoff is so small still. But the idea that every week, once they start those committee rankings halfway through the year, Ohio State fans can get hunkered down that night and be excited. Where's Ohio State? Where's Ohio State? If Ryan Day and the Buckeyes are three and two or they're five and three, and nobody cares about the playoff rankings because we're talking about, you know, which mid-level Big Ten bowl is Ohio State going to go to. That's going to be a completely different reality because when you're in the playoff mix the whole time for 12 regular season games, even if you don't make it, it makes for a really fun regular season. And I think in the Urban Meyer era, I think some people would look at Urban Meyer and especially the last five years of the playoff and say, man, they didn't quite achieve what I thought they would because they didn't win another playoff game after they won the national championship. But the one thing they did do is give you the five years of the playoff, every single year Ohio State fans have been completely invested in that race from week one until the Michigan game and that's and the Big Ten championship game. And that's that's a pretty cool way to get through a season. Well, let me let me spin this around and ask you a question here, Doug, because we, I talk about how, you know, what, and this is indicative of all of college football, but especially at elite programs like Ohio State, where we have very few data points, but then we hyperanalyze those data points. So for the last couple of years, one of the things we've done on a national level, I mean, which I'm sure you've done very much even more so on a local level, is hyperanalyze why does Ohio State keep having these massive flameouts? Now, again, we're talking a game against Clemson, a game against Iowa, and a game against Purdue. Three games over the course of three seasons. But yet we want to try to draw, extrapolate some reason for this. Not just, hey, man, they just had a bad night. Stuff happens, you know. Uh, the, 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 the Clemson game was just 
an offense that sort of was a little smoke and mirrors all year, and they finally ran into a team that just wasn't having it, right? And then Iowa, a bad game, a bunch of interceptions, it, it happens. You know, Purdue was, you know, whatever Purdue was. But as you have, I'm, I, again, I'm sure hyper-analyzed those data points, was there some kind of common theme? Was there a reason that these high-profile flameouts happened? I mean, we, I've talked about on a national level how I always felt like Urban was a coach because he's not the robot that Saban was, that maybe his teams, because he was more of an emotional coach who was able to sort of tap into the, the, you know, the emotion of his team in some ways, that that led to certain like roller coaster highs and lows. But I mean, really, like you, I can make that argument, but then step away and go, wait a second, we're talking three games over three years. So have you ever, have you come up with some kind of hypothesis on what was, what happened in these three data points? I think it's, it's an interesting question. Cause I'm not sure that I've looked, I've thought about it from this vantage point. Cause we thought about it a whole lot in the moment, each time it happened. Um, I one, I agree with you. I think urban was a more of a high and low coach. And I have even compared him to Trestle that I felt like Jim Trestle didn't lose to Iowa and Purdue very much. But the thing when with Jim Trestle, especially, you know, after winning the national championship in 2002, when they made the title games in 2006 and 2007, the idea was sort of like, can they get over the top? They can't get over the top against national powers. They dominate the Big Ten. They win all the games they're supposed to win. But when it's equal talent, they can't get it done. And and that was the criticism, I think, of Jim Tressel when he was losing two straight national title games. Whereas Urban, Urban did get over the top. Urban went, you know, I, even those years when they didn't make the playoff, you go to a bowl game and you beat USC. You go to bowl games and perform well and, and beat Washington and beat top tier teams. But maybe there was a little more of a roller coaster within the season itself. And I remember writing after the Iowa loss, like as Urban Meyer lost his edge a little bit somehow. He just looked lost after that game. He was shocked. It was like... How did this happen? Now, with the hindsight of now, I would also say I think it's three very different things that happened in those three games. I think the Clemson loss was an offense that was um, deficient all year, and they actually patched it together, and that was probably a three-loss team that overachieved, and their reward for overachieving was making the playoff and getting shut out by Clemson. So that, I think, is sort of an outlier. It's almost like they – Urban coached them up so well, he set them up to get embarrassed on a national stage. Then the Iowa loss, I think it was a little hangover from Penn State the week before. Nick Bosa gets ejected. JT gets a little, like, overconfident and makes some bad throws that he, he usually doesn't make. And then the Purdue thing was the the crescendo of a defensive failure that basically lasted the whole year. But they managed to win every other time, even though the defense wasn't very good. So it's like... In those ways, individually, I think the three games are very different, but I do think there might be an underlying theme of Urban pushed you so hard. He got you up for the big games, but maybe there were moments that you got blindsided because you weren't quite as up as you were for Michigan or Penn State or Wisconsin, and all of a sudden, we saw what happened. But on the other hand, nine losses in seven years, it's just that the losses were so spectacular they held them back in the playoff committee room, and nobody ever forgot them. Yeah. It, it, again, it, it, you're you're asking we're we're sort of again overanalyzing these very small data points to try to come up with a common theme when you have three different teams in three different situations. Um, 
And listen, you know, if, if in four or five years from now we're looking at three data points for Ryan Day that maybe have separated him from a few, a few national championships, but everything else is the same, will still be will he will be a a, a raging success. Uh, I think if again if you can get Ryan Day to the point where it's only a loss, a perplexing loss here or a flame out there in the playoff, for the most part, people are going to be pretty happy with Ryan Day. Uh, I want to get to some uh, listener questions that we have, but one more thing that you've led us into, Ralph, that I think is interesting is back when I was covering Jim Tressel's Big Ten uh, champion Ohio State teams, and there was a lot of justified criticism locally and nationally for the that the Big Ten was weak. The Big Ten did not compare to the SEC especially. And, and I would often try to make points that like, you know what, it's a meat grinder in the SEC. And so sometimes if somebody jumps up and gets you in the SEC, maybe maybe a mid-tier team gets you, but actually it's the loss. It's, it's the win against a top 10 team the week before that contributed to your loss to an unranked team the next week because it's a meat grinder and it's hard to get through eight tough conference games every year, and Ohio State was skating through a little bit by comparison in the Big Ten. Now, I do think that's another underlying factor of this, Ralph, that the Big Ten's better. The Big Ten's better, and at least better than it was, and I think the middle and bottom of the SEC, for instance, is not as good as it once was. Do you believe, how do you think that factors into a season? the depth of a conference and where do you, do you think that the middle and the bottom of the big 10, how does that, the middle and bottom of the big 10 compare to the middle and bottom of the ACC and SEC and the schedules that Bama and Clemson are playing week to week? No, I I would agree totally with the idea that you get some of the grind down games uh, in, in in the big 10. I I think now, in fact, this, this coming season will be especially fascinating for me as far as how the Big Ten plays out, not just because of all the uncertainty with the Eastern powers, but because there's clearly an upswing in the West. Now, I don't, I'm not here to say that Nebraska is ready to win national championships or that Iowa is this or Minnesota is that, but all of those programs are on the upswing. Literally every single team in the West, even Illinois in its own little cute way, is on the upswing. So I think you're, you're setting yourself up in the Big Ten for just what you're saying, which is week to week, it's going to be a bit of a grind. And if you're not on your game or if you've got a, an injury or two, you're bound to get, to get beat. Um, as far as where the Big Ten stands in comparison to the SEC right now, um, let me just say this. Again, going back to what we talked about earlier, location, location, location. The SEC is the best conference, right? Why is the SEC the best conference? Because that's where all the players live. It literally is where most of the great players live right now. So I think top to bottom, the SEC is still the best conference. Now, does that mean it's light years ahead of the Big Ten? No, I don't think so. I think where the SEC, the Big Ten has become comparable to the SEC is its very best teams, the Ohio State, Michigan, Penn State is recruiting at a level now where it's comparable to a lot of the better Big Ten best uh, SEC schools. And I think there's an upswing in even some of those Western teams. So I think the top and the middle looks very similar to the SEC. I think where the Big Ten still probably falls short of where the SEC is, is the very bottom. 
the uh, again we talked about Illinois. Illinois is still you know really really bad, and Rutgers I, is really uh, really bad. It, everything is Rutgers' fault, Ralph. Everything in the Big Ten is Rutgers' well, fault. I blame Rutgers. I blame Rutgers for this. Yeah, go ahead. Frickin no, but you, and, and, and frankly, you have a point um, because now that Illinois is sort of looks like it's piecing at least something that looks like a respectable bad program, right? Like not a not a Herculean bad program. Oh my God, that team shouldn't be in the Big Ten. Someone might get hurt, right? That's where Rutgers has been over the last couple of years. Like <laughs> Illinois is sort of moving away from that. Indiana has scraped together a level of. Again, I'll use the word respectability, where it, it, it at least challenge, it, it at least could be a sort of a, if you catch Indiana on the right week at home when they are healthy, they could they could challenge you. Um, but I, I do think that there is a, a depth at the bottom of the very the, the SEC, where listen, Arkansas was pretty terrible last year, but you know the old Miss team that I think won one SE, one or two SEC games last year, and I may be wrong on that. Maybe they won three. They had eight players off their offense drafted. Yeah. So I think there's a level of talent toward, toward generally toward the bottom of the SEC that you're just not going to get a lot of the other conferences, Big Ten included. Though again, I, I think the Big Ten is is stacking up on sort of an SEC level more now than it's sort of what you talked about, the Trestle era, Ohio State. A lot of the questions that I got, Ralph, for, for when I asked, I told people you were going to be on, um, they're playoff related because that is where Ohio State is right now. And I think that also is a, it's sort of a, it's a tribute to the program that, you know, there's a, there's an assumption about the Michigan game. There's an assumption about winning, winning the Big Ten East. There's an assumption that, that Ohio State, of course, Ohio State's the best team in the Big Ten, Let's talk about the next level. So we had a question, uh, question from Matty Ice, a loyal listener, and it, you, you referenced this a bit earlier. How did the playoff committee thought process evolve from 2015 when the best resume um, deserved entry, he means Ohio State, to 2017 when the best eye test deserved entry? Um, and lots of people seem to think that, that ESPN has, a, has a, a dog in this fight and somehow has influence whether um, – outward or inward on the playoff committee selections. How do you think the the committee has evolved? And I guess my question partly is, is evolve even the right word? Because is it a linear movement of they went from here to here to here, or is it more scattershot that from year to year, we don't exactly know what the, the main qualifications that they're looking for are going to be? Yeah, I think I think you're you're more along the lines of the fact that it's not necessarily linear, and I am interested to see how things play out this year um, when it stink. And I'll use the word the stink Jim Delaney made sort of after last year's playoff results, right? I, I think that I think that uh, the Big Ten was has been working the refs. Quite frankly, I don't know if the Big Ten is really I think the Big Ten would ultimately like to see this thing expanded. But I don't think the motivation I don't think it it has necessarily the motivation or the tools to to create a quick expansion. I think what the what the Big Ten was doing in the short term is working the refs and trying to send the signal that, listen, man, like you've got to honor our our conference champions. We want conference champions honored a little bit more. And you got to like, you know, go a little deeper here into what, what is happening within our conference and stop giving us the short trip. So uh, th- that's one way of putting it. So 
how the I, I don't know if there's been an evolution. I do think the thing there's been some twists and turns here. I think that the committee itself quite literally has changed every year, right? Whether it's a, a few members of the committee, uh, three different chairmen. We're now on set the, we're going to the second year of Rob Mullins, the Oregon AD as the chairman. We had a couple of years, at least one or two years of Kirby Holcutt and a couple of years of uh, Jeff Long as the committee chairman. I, having simply done one of the mocks of this process. Oh, man, I, I want to do the mock. You, you got to do the mock? Yeah, we, we 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 got to get you on that. I'll 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 let not that like oh yeah I'll talk to somebody kid don't worry about it. I'll get you set up but seriously like I will send a note to somebody and say like I think you need to be invited to to the mock. Woo. I can tell you that the dynamic of the room is important. This is not a I'm going to fill out my ballot, hand it to the hand it to someone, we count up the ballot and that's the way it lands because that's what the way the AP poll works. It's it, it's 61 individuals having 61 opinions, and then we count up their opinions. Right. When you put tw 12 people in a room and they give you their opinion and it goes into a machine and they count them up and then they put it on the board and then you talk about it, right? And then you break up the teams into groups and then you debate those teams. And who are the strongest voices in that room? Who are the voices that – who are two people sitting next to each other who have similar opinions and then become emboldened with those opinions and become stronger in those opinions. Whereas two people sitting next to each other who have different, differing opinions maybe are swayed by each other and form a different type of coalition. And I'm trying, trying to say that there is, you know, some kind of nefarious stuff going on in the room. I'm just saying that that's the way rooms work, right? When you start debating, if you get into a, a, a if you have a conference with your bosses in whatever business and you coming up with ideas like the strong personalities and, and different opinions Ooh. will sway the room in different ways, depending literally on who's sitting next to who. I will say that makes me very excited to do this, Ralph, because almost every meeting that I'm in uh, at my company, I end up shouting. So uh, <laughs> I get excited. Ooh, if I can get in a room and start yelling at people, but they'll probably kick me out. Then let, let me let me let me come in specifically on a question then. And I think has hovered over Ohio State and the way you're describing this makes me even more interested in this. I had a belief that for the last two years, Ohio State was hindered in that discussion because Gene Smith was the Big Ten representative, and he couldn't be in there when you talked about Ohio State. And Gene Smith finally resigned from the committee and had some other reason why he did it, but we know that's why he did it. He took himself out so that he could have a Big Ten rep in there that would be allowed to talk about Ohio State. I know Oklahoma's AD has been on it. I know Clemson's AD has been on it. If you're describing a scenario, Ralph, where personalities and the discussion in the room matter so much, why do we have the ADs of any of the best teams when you have a very high likelihood that you're going to you're setting yourself up for recusals because, of course, you're going to be talking about Ohio State and Oklahoma and Clemson. I think this should be a punishment. If your football team is the worst team in your conference, you become the rep to the playoff committee. You can't have ADs of good teams in there because you hinder the whole point of the exercise. 
I would actually argue, take it one step further and say you shouldn't have active ADs in there at all, right? I'm in. And, and, and I'm not even saying, like, I really do believe, and again, people may call me naive, I really do believe that most, the people step into that room and generally put their bias aside and where they're from aside and try to come up with the four best teams. So I'll leave that there. Uh, though I think the perception, anytime you have active ADs, it's just going to kill your perception. It's going to lead in a world where we, we most the population is dying for conspiracy theories. Um, anything that leads to, hey, you know, why did my team not get in? Oh, that's because you're biased. You have an agenda, this, that, or the other thing. So I would say that the best thing to do is to simply remove the ADs in general. Uh, you probably have a point when it comes to what Gene Smith has done and the idea that maybe you don't have a, a representative or what's the, a strong advocate in the room for the Big Ten team. Though I would also argue maybe you don't – it shouldn't work that way in the first place. Like, you shouldn't have, ad, like, advocates for conferences in there. You should have blank slates and people who have open-minded to everything. Well, that's I the thing. I will also say this. They're trying to like they're trying to balance out the bias, Ralph, rather than saying we're going to create a room with no bias. They're like, well, if we have a guy from each conference advocating for his conference, then that's fair. And I think I agree with you that you'd be better off just getting blank slates who they have no dog in the fight. Go ahead. OK, I will also say this. I, I think we, again, over scrutinize and analyze the committee thinking when really you've got up 12 people who are just sort of looking for the best team. And then I don't think there, there, there are literally the criteria is open-ended, right? That was the point of making this thing. The idea that you don't have specific boxes to check. They have a protocol that says if in doubt, if two teams are similar, go to conference champion, go to head to head, things along those lines. But don't confuse the protocol with set and rigid guidelines. They really wanted this thing to be very open-ended so you're never boxed into, oh, we have, now we have these requirements. This team doesn't meet these check-the-box requirements. But, man, clearly that's one of the best teams. So it's a subjective it's a subjective process. It is meant to be subjective. So I think the frustration that fans have is, well, there's no consistency. It's not meant to be consistent. Right? It's, it's meant to start all over at the beginning of each year, look at four, look at a group of teams, and just try to come up with the best ones. So your reasoning is going to move from place to place from year to year. Um, and I understand that is super frustrating. It is really, really frustrating to fans. And that is not in any way a satisfying answer. But I, unfortunately, I think the an that is your answer. The answer is, you know, there, there's never going to be boxes to check here. And it's always going to be a little frustrating because it's, it's meant to be subjective. And, and we, we came from a world, Ralph, where there were a bunch of computers involved. People didn't really like that. That's not subjective. That's a computer formula. And we had pollsters in two different polls who would rank people at the start of a season and then not not move them down if they didn't lose. And that was sort of like a, well, you know, we know how this works. So I, I, I think um, 
I think you're you're right on everything. I, I think this is the best system we've ever had. I just think it still could be better. And one of the things that I've talked about, and I know other people uh, involved with the process agree with this, is sometimes I think what they do is fine. They just can't explain it. I think the committee the committee heads have at times done a poor job. But, they Kirby Hocutt sounded like a robot half the time. It's like just talk like yeah. a person and tell us what you did. Kirby was not was never really super comfortable in this, and it, it, it you know, and the funny thing is, Kirby's like a pretty like good guy to talk to away from it. But I think when the when the lights went on with the cameras, Kirby just froze up. I think Rob Mullen's a little better. But here's the problem. Here's the problem with the just explain it. It you, they can't just say because this is what we think because we say so. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to. And I, again, I understand that's super unsatisfying, but. No matter what I come up with, at, at the end of the day, there's going to be a good argument for Ohio State, and there's going to be a good argument for Oklahoma if we're taking last year. I could make a good argument for both of those teams. And at a certain point, I'm just going to have to pick one, right? I'm just going to have to say, uh, we like that one better. We just like that. So, so they have this and they have that, and here's all the reasons. Oh, but those reasons aren't as consistent to what you said last week. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, we just think that this, this team is better, and they can't. They can't just say like, "Listen, man, we just think this team's better." They have to try to come up with reasons to justify, but you'll never be able to ultimately like do that and satisfy everybody. What would what the real reason is? Because we say so. The real reason why we picked this team is because that's the team that we think should be in the in the playoffs. Because because that general that general who used to carry the the nuclear suitcase like really yelled a lot in the room and we were like yeah let's trust that guy yeah I mean it's 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 just <laughs> yeah. they're they're just people Ralph they're just people they're just, they're just people they're just people we're we're asking them to do something that we're asking them again to sort of justify something with all kinds of facts and figures and and detailed reasons that will satisfy everybody when that is an impossible task i'm going to ask one more playoff question because so people are so into it alan kitchen a kitchen 87 loyal loyal listener gets to i think we can ask for advice on this how does the interplay between playing a difficult schedule versus looking dominant against a weak schedule really work as far as college football playoff selection goes ralph if you were advising if you got out of this journalism racket and created the ralph russo consulting business and you were advising athletic directors on how to shape their football schedules to give them the best chance to get in the playoff knowing everything we just talked about which is they're just going to pick who they want to pick would you advise tougher schedules or easier schedules what would be your advice Boy, um, I would advise you want to have three or four really big games because it seems to me that's what the committee is looking for. Ultimately, it's looking for, and I'm not a big fan of that, ultimately. Like, I, I, I see a lot of value in what we talked about earlier as far as the, uh, the grind, right? And I think as great as the, as, as good as the SEC is, and it provides a lot of high-value games within the conference, I think it lessens, it mitigates against some of the grind by having three patsies sprinkled in uh, among a bye week and then a, a late week, you know, before Auburn plays Alabama, they play the Citadel. So that alleviates some of the grind. And I think the grind is important. That's the only reason I'll bring up, I'll bring up Notre Dame here. One of the reasons why I always sort of like – 
respect Notre Dame's schedule because you can tell me, well, they didn't play the highest-end opponents. But Notre Dame will usually have 10 games a year against teams that need true preparation. Where you, you, it's, not a, it's not a walkover. But the, the committee seems to value three or four games where you can separate yourself, where you can show what you are against the best competition. And the Big Ten and the SEC generally provide those opportunities within conference. Now, you can say the Big Ten has not, um, has not capitalized or at least uh, has not capitalized on that or at least has not been has not benefited from that as much as maybe it should. But I think the Big Ten and the SEC generally have enough oomph within their conference. If you're Ohio State and you beat Michigan, Penn State, a good West team, and Michigan State, you will usually have a pretty good resume there. And it did. It worked out in 2015 for Ohio State to say, here's our resume. This is what we have. We have five or six really big wins. Let us in the playoff. We don't care about the five or six other fodder that we have. And I think that's where I can understand why Big Ten fans and fans of other conferences get very frustrated when they see the SEC getting the benefit of the doubt because the SEC will always have four or five – SEC teams will always have four or five games where you can say, look, look at the high level that we played at in these three to five games, but don't look at all those other – yeah, don't, 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 don't even look at those other four or five games where we played trash. The the uh, a corollary to this, Ralph, and and um, there's a lot of stuff that we talk about in college football that's sort of uh, pie in the sky, and, and and I think sometimes those discussions aren't worth a lot. I mean, we may as well talk about what could actually happen. But this year, Alabama, the week before Auburn, will play Western Carolina. Ohio State, the week before Michigan, will play Penn State. That's a big that's a big difference. And maybe if if Alabama and Ohio State are neck and neck. Um, in the college football playoff race, then beating Penn State instead of beating Western Carolina would give Ohio State an edge. But also, certainly, Ohio State is going to have a much greater chance of losing in Week 11 than Alabama will. Will we ever have a college football commissioner? Will we ever have a set of rules regarding scheduling, regarding recruiting, um, regarding a number of other things that brings some more commonality to college football or is part of the greatness of college football, the fact that it is a regional sport, there are some differences, yet we still play for one national championship. Would we ever get to a point, I guess, especially with the schedule, where there are more, there's more common ground and a set of broad rules that everybody has to follow? I would be surprised if we ever have a czar or a commissioner or somebody that mandates commonality, that mandates uniformity. I do think that there are forces at play on a sort of a local level, regional level, that may push things towards uniformity. Um, everybody's having a hard time getting people into their building, right? Attendance is a problem all over college football, even in the passionate SEC. Um, uh, how do we milk more money out of our TV deals when they seemingly have bubbled and when they have maxed out? How do we manage to get more in our media rights deals? So these are universal problems that may drive the SEC to say, to say finally, listen, man, we got to play nine conference games because like ESPN just doesn't want to show Tennessee against Western Carolina on the SEC network. They're tired of doing that. And we can't fill our, like, even listen, even at Alabama, once or twice a year, 
because I've been there and watched it, Nick Saban will call out his fans. Hey, don't leave early. Hey, don't show up late uh, to Colorado State or to some scrubby school, you know, FCS school. So they're having these issues as well. Because of those issues, those things that don't have to do with anything, but uh, don't have to do with the playoff. They don't have to do with, you know, competition, but I think they will play out and maybe force some commonality as far as scheduling um, and things along those lines that may make it look a little the same. So I think we may get there, but I don't think we'll get there the way some folks might think we'll get there. I don't think, I think ultimately this is still a sport of fiefdoms where people are looking out first and foremost for their own, for their own kingdom. Uh, I am most concerned with the SEC if I work in, and yeah, I would say it, it goes two levels. I am most concerned with my campus. I am next concerned with my conference, and then I'll worry about everything else. And that's the way it is across all of college, college football, and I don't think that's ever going to change. And I'm not sure if I want it to change, quite frankly. I don't know if making it more homogenized and uniform would necessarily make it better. And I think one of the issues that's going forward in college football, and I'm babbling a little bit here, but allow me, is, is what you just talked about. We're trying to make a regional sport more national. And it's been going okay through the BCS level. We've been making strides in, to, along those lines. But now we're sort of gotten to a new level here, and we're realizing, oh, maybe this doesn't work. You know, maybe this is hard to make this regional sport national and to tie all these regions together and maybe we're seeing that it doesn't quite play out that way because there are too many factors within these regions that make it for an impo- make it impossible to have a level playing field across the nation when the sport is so regional. And I will say on top of that, it's still better than it's ever been. And I think, you know, a lot of American society has become homogenized that, the, you know, there's the same restaurants in every city and, and there's not as much of a, uh, a cultural identity sometimes and that, you know, y- you can wake up somewhere and think, well, wh- where am I? I could be in, in 10 different cities right now. And I think college football does need to hang on to that. But again, you've got to have a national champion to think back to the times now when when they never they never settled anything on the field from a national standpoint. And that wasn't that long ago. We've come so far and it is so much better. Um, and, and you know what? I I think it's in my opinion at the moment, it's good enough. I understand the complaints, and Ohio State's in a very interesting position, again, as the only team to have finished within – to have finished five, six, or seven three different times. Nobody else has been as close as many times as Ohio State. So I get why Ohio State fans are frustrated. But, again, in the end, it's better than any alternative of the past. And um, it most of the time, the best teams get a fair shot. I have four more oh. questions, Ralph, and then I'll get – then, okay. then I'll yeah. let you get back no, to your luck. Go ahead. Let's do it. Okay, so no, no, no. I will, let me let me just throw one quick thing at you. It, it, to the the world that we're looking at right now is going to be fine for Ohio State because Ohio State is going to be always in the mix. I think what was happening is a harsh reality is coming over a lot of the rest of college football because they don't have a chance. They right. re, they are realizing now, wow, we are not playing at the level to have a chance at the system that we have in place now. We are trying to make a bigger tent, but in actuality, 
what the playoff is showing is that the tent is actually pretty small. Well, okay, so now I have like six more questions. So let's let's talk about because really, I, I think we we would say I, I still think there's a top five, right? It's basically the teams that have been in the playoff: Alabama, Clemson, Georgia, Oklahoma, Ohio State. But then you see. Texas is coming back. You see that Texas A&M makes a huge move with Jimbo. You see that LSU is recruiting at a really high level right now. Uh, Florida State with Willie Taggart would like to get it back. Dan Mullen at Florida. Chip Kelly at UCLA. Chip, um, um, what's the Peterson guy that Ohio State just played in the uh, Washington coach? What's the Washington Chris coach? P- Chris Peterson. Chris, Chris, Chris Peterson. Chip, yeah. yeah. Chris Peterson yeah, Chris at Washington. Peterson. <laughs> you know, Jim Harbaugh at Michigan and James Franklin at Penn State, there are teams who are trying to sort of maybe get into that top five. Who can really get in? I think Texas, clearly, Texas should be there. The fact that Texas fell off for as long as it did is remarkable. But who anymore, Ralph, really has a chance to get there? And I guess maybe I'll fold my Michigan question I was going to ask into this. I don't even know if Michigan can realistically think that it can play at that level on a consistent basis just because – it, it has to split Michigan, the state of Michigan, with Michigan State. It doesn't get as many kids out of, out of Ohio right now. They're, you know, it's just I think Michigan overall is not quite at Ohio State's level. But how many teams can really play in the very top tier? Say if Alabama and Clemson are, the, are one, how many teams can be in the 1A tier? If there are three now, are there maybe only five other programs who can really play there? Who, who, are the, yeah, no. who has a chance? No, I, I agree with you on that. I, I think that you're there's a very I, I think there is there's a there's two pools, right? It's how many teams can win a national championship? And I think that pool might not even be ten. Um, how many teams can get in the playoff? And maybe I can extend that to twenty. And maybe I could even go a little further because again, like you can get into the playoff with a couple of breaks, like a Michigan State did, right? You can have. Uh, uh, you know, you, you, you win a couple of close games, you win that one game that's super important, and maybe you can get in. I think that's, I, quite frankly, I think the college football playoff needs more of that. It needs those, a few one-off teams that don't necessarily win the thing, but get in there and provide a little new blood would be very helpful. Um, but when we're talking about, like, truly programs that could be on that 1A tier or that tier 2, I think you're you're barely talking a dozen here. You're looking at Texas, as you said, USC should be there if it was run competently. Um, I think LSU and Florida are there. One of the things I like to tell people is if you want to know if your school can win a national championship, ask yourself this simple question. Has my school ever won a national championship? If the answer is no, then most likely the answer is no. Hmm. That's a really interesting way to think of it. Yeah. Now, now, now squeeze it down even further because then I, don't, I want to take away some of those like Minnesota teams from the 1940s that dominated when the world was a very different place. Squeeze it down to the last 50 years. If your school has not won a national championship in the last 50 years, I am almost certain your school will not win a national championship. Because I just think college football, so much of it is about the DNA of the program. And I get to ask this all the time. Well, what school that hasn't won a national championship do you think can win a national championship? And I look through the list, and the one that comes to mind is maybe, possibly, I could see a scenario where Virginia Tech has a, has a season where it all comes to but, – but not in this current world where Ohio, where Clemson is so far out in front of everybody else and Alabama is so far, like in a post-Dabo Saban world, 
where the, the planets are realigned and we have a you know, tectonic shifting of the, of the powers of college football, maybe I could see a Virginia Tech become a, a team that could win a national championship. But I think if you have never won a national championship, you ain't going to win a national championship. And the problem with the post-Saban, post-Dabo world is that the post-Saban world is going to be Dabo at Alabama. And then Dabo might well, win I'm, 10 in a row, right? I, I'm not so sure about that. I, 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 maybe he is the guy who replaces the guy who replaces Saban. I think he's young enough to do that. I'm not sure if Dabo is going to go straight from what he has now, which is everything, right. to leaving that behind and, build, and then you know, having taking on the pressure of doing it as well as Saban at Alabama. But that's an aside. Uh, Brock Doctor. This is just a, a thing a lot of people wonder about. What's the likelihood of an eight-team playoff in the near future? I know the, the contract is, what, through 2025? Do you think there's any chance yeah. that we go to eight teams any time before that, or are we definitely locked into the four-team playoff through 2025? Yeah, I think that's the dividing line. So near future would be before the contract ends uh, and or beyond the con- when there's a new contract. I don't think we'll have an eight-team before the contract ends. I don't think there is enough motivation. I think this thing is running well enough from a, from a revenue and attention standpoint. Uh, as much as we complain about it, the negativity against it is not nearly to the BCS level. So I don't think there's a lot of motivation. Um, the other thing I would also say is, and we've had the first uh, pin pulled on this. One of the things that I, I, my standard line is the playoff will change when the people change. So right. when we have some new commissioners, we already have one new commissioner. We have a new Big Ten commissioner. Uh, I think we will probably have a CC commissioner. We may even have a new Pac-12 commissioner by the time we get to the point of negotiating the next contract. And I think those commissioners will probably come to the table more motivated to put their stamp on the thing and to create a new playoff. I, I, I think we underestimate the work it will take to go to eight. And I'm not sure the guys who are in charge right now, and they are all guys, um, want to do that work to create an 18 playoff. I don't think they're motivated to. So my, my, my answer, my, that's my long answer. My short answer is it's inevitable we'll get to eight, but I think it's in the next contract. I want to ask you about Jim Harbaugh, Urban Meyer, and Ryan Day, and then we'll be out. Jim Harbaugh, what he's done at Michigan would you view it as a success? We talked a little bit about the idea of, of can Michigan really even play at Ohio State's level? And just what are your – I had Phil Steele on this podcast a couple weeks ago. He's finally he, – for the first time in 12 years, he's picking Michigan to finish Ohio, ahead of Ohio State in the regular season. Do you think the end of Urban Meyer is the chance for Jim Harbaugh to pounce? Or do you think there's something inherent here that, that maybe Michigan is just – not playing at Ohio State's level and is going to have a hard time really competing consistently against Ohio State. Okay, I think uh, I think Jim Harbaugh at this point is a rod. Uh, at a certain Ooh. point, a rod. Now, now let's take away the take away the steroid issue there. But I think at, at some point, a rod was the greatest player in baseball, one of the greatest players in baseball history. But he was only judged on his failures. So the only games that he only the games that he lost and he struck out in the ninth inning, those were the big at bats. But when he had a home run to beat the Twins in a playoff series, those weren't big games. So the only game, big games, are the games where Harbaugh loses. So Michigan is, is stronger than it has ever – so he's, he is a great at his job, but he is only judged at this point by his failures. 
Um, Michigan hasn't been as strong as this since the Lloyd Carr era, so there's no doubt he has been a success. Um, I think that his failures, if it continues the way it goes, might say more about the problems Michigan will have related to what you said about recruiting and, and all the things that go into building a program equal to Ohio State might be more about the limitations of the Michigan program than the limitations of Harbaugh. But he is also, you know, we're going to see this new offense this year. I think some of the antiquatedness of that offense is laid on his doorstep. So we'll see what happens this year. And you're right. I mean, they're playing at home. We'll see what this new offense looks like. You have the experienced quarterback and you have a new coach at Ohio State, if not this year, when? So I will say, listen, I picked Michigan to make the playoff last year, and I was looking pretty good until 62 points later in the, in the horseshoe. Uh, it all came crumbling down. I'm at the point now where I'll have to, like, sort of see it to believe it, but I, I think Jim Harbaugh has been a success, but I think he is a person that people love to hate, and he will always be judged by his failures. I was such a Big Ten flack that I picked Ohio State and Michigan to make the playoff last year. I had this whole scenario <laughs> where, where the Big Ten got two in, and they got none in again. Um, all right, Urban Meyer. From a national perspective, how do you believe Urban Meyer is viewed right now? I think we know how Ohio State fans feel about him um, after the seven-year run and even after the way it ended with the Zach Smith stuff. I think you know he clearly is a, is a seven-year legend here at Ohio State. What's what's the world view on Urban? Yeah, maybe I'll use another baseball analogy. I'm a big baseball fan. You know, maybe Urban is Barry Bonds. Um, I, I I don't know if Bar I don't know if Urban will ever be beloved. I think he will be respected, um, but he he is just. I think he will always play a little bit of the villain role to everybody else but Ohio State. But just like Barry Bonds will always have a safe haven. In, in San Francisco, I think no matter what the evidence says about Barry Bonds, he is still loved in San Francisco. My guess is Urban will always still be loved and revered in Ohio. He will always have a safe haven in Ohio. I do think from a national perspective, yeah, listen, he is one of the five or ten great uh, – ten. He is one of the five or six or seven great college coaches of all time. The results back that up. But I think he will always wear – something of the black hat to most of college football. Uh, and, and that, and, and that includes a place where he coached. And that's a big right. reason why, like he doesn't, he is not a, a, he is not beloved in Gainesville. And I would, again, I'll flip it around and ask you a question. If urban lands at USC next year, do you think he will still be as beloved in Ohio as he is now? Or will they look or will, will some of the support in Ohio, especially in Columbus, turn on him and go, wait a second, uh, we thought you needed to get away and now you left us behind. And what what's going on here? Uh, I think some of it would erode. I've had a lot of fans tell me, though, that um, they're so grateful for the seven year run they had and they feel good. Uh, about Ryan Day that like they would not have hard feelings. So obviously we can all see that the end at Florida and the end at Ohio State was a little different. You know, that they, they didn't fall off the cliff at Ohio State and people feel like uh, the Buckeyes are still set up to win. Um, but I think it is hard 
both times when you when you have say you have a reason sort of a medical reason a reason other than just coaching that is forcing you to step away and then it's like I'm healed and I'm back I think that would affect it um with some people and and I have an understanding that like urban understands that urban's sort of been told that that um you know if if Ohio State just becomes a stop on his coaching career and that it's not really all that different from Bowling Green or Utah or Florida or wherever he goes next and maybe even somewhere else after that, if it's just a stop, I think he absolutely has to be viewed differently than if he never coaches again and he winds up as this great seven-year legend who had to step away but only after lifting Ohio State to its greatest height. So I think I think it would matter, and I think he I think he knows if, if the coaching itch is enough, maybe he'll do it, but I think he knows he'd be giving up at least something in terms of his Ohio State legacy. Yeah, I, and just, you know, I always find one of the, uh, the ironic things about how it sort of ended at Ohio State, and again, you talk about, the black hat on Urban Meyer and how he is viewed from a national level and how he is somewhat portrayed as a villain outside of the Columbus area or outside of Ohio State fans is that, again, the way he left Ohio State is so much different from the way he left Florida. The, he, he truly left a dysfunctional situation at Florida because he let the program get away from himself, get away uh, on many levels. And whereas at Ohio State, he learned from the Florida time, and he built a different type of program at Ohio State. He built a, pro- a program that I think more was more in line with what he wanted to culturally and left it healthier to a certain degree. But, the, but again, from a national level, the Zach Smith thing just blows all that away. And the irony, again, yeah. is that it is so different at Ohio State than what it is at Florida, but because of what happened with Zach Smith – that's all gets wiped away. We'll end back with with kind of where we started um, with Ryan Day. And when you look at what Kirby Smart has done at Georgia uh, in his first head coaching job, what Lincoln Riley has done at Oklahoma in his first head coaching job, Gene Smith has compared Ryan Day to, to Lincoln Riley uh, a lot. Dabo was not a head coach before taking over at Clemson. What what does it take to succeed? At this level, and and is it? We don't know. No one knows what's going to happen with Ryan Day. No one can pretend that that they know him so well that they are certain whether he's going to succeed or not succeed. But just on a on a cursory level, when you look at, for instance, Kirby Smart and Lincoln Riley, would it make sense to you that like, yeah, Ryan Day could do that. Ryan Day could step in and and absolutely have Ohio State contending for the playoff and the national championship right away. Yeah, I mean, the model is there, and Lincoln Riley is the perfect example. If, if, if Ryan Day was hired in many ways because he is considered a, a guy who can, can work with quarterbacks, get the most out of quarterbacks. I'm, listen, I'm sure it's, not, it's more than that. They think of him more than just a quarterback coach. But just look at what, happened, what happens this year. If he taps into Justin Fields and all that great talent and Ohio State you know, is a rocket ship again this season, we've already seen that there are signs that he's going to be able to keep the recruiting at a super high level. There is no reason why Ryan Day could not be Lincoln Riley, could not move this thing into a Lincoln Riley situation. I I, I guess, again, the only thing I would hedge on is that Stoops had been at Oklahoma long enough so that it had turned a little bit 
and then Stoops had done a nice job of turning it back to the to an upswing and then handed it off to Riley. It never went down at, at, at Ohio State under Urban. Urban never had a downturn. So I think there is such lofty expectations for what is going to be expected a day, of day. Uh, that is my only question is, can he hit those such lofty expectations at Ohio State? But the data-Riley comparison is the best-case scenario. If you're Ohio State, that's what you want. You want that you want to, in a couple of years, say, oh, he was a guy who took over a great situation, provided just enough new energy, new perspective, some different touches, a little quarterback magic, a little boost to the offense, and he took it. And, he, and, and that the, the rocket ship kept soaring, right? That's what, that's what you hope that Ryan Day is, that he is to Ohio State what Lincoln Riley was to Oklahoma. And I do think, I mean, Lincoln Riley is the best case scenario. I think like Mark Helfrich at Oregon is the worst case scenario, right? That he took over for Chip Kelly. He, in his second year, basically with Chip's guys, he reached the national title game. Then he goes nine and four and four and eight and gets fired. Um Ohio State has more in place structurally, tradition-wise facilities, uh, maybe not facilities, but is more of a national power than Oregon was. Maybe it was harder to keep that going, but uh, I just, I don't think that's going to, I don't think Ryan Day is going to coach for four years before an eight in his last year and get fired. I would be flabbergasted if that's the arc of Ryan Day's career, but. Here, here, here's, here's the one thing, here's the one thing I would say. Um, never hire a guy who nobody else would hire. Right. And I think in the Helfrich situation, I'm not sure if anybody else would have been rushing to make Helfrich a head coach. Ryan Day would have been a well sought after guy. The, uh, uh, the other part of it is you never know what these guys will be until they have the job. These programs have become such monstrosities of, um, of administration, right, of, just, of, of being able to be an executive and work the machine that you never know how that's going to work until you see the guy in it. Because they're just, again, the, the machine is so big at this point, it could overwhelm you. And you'll never be able to know if it will work until we see it work. And I do think I, Ryan Day is smart, and Ryan Day is a good person. And that is a great start um, to any coaching career, but it's just hard when the obvious comparison that everybody in the country, including your own athletic director, is making is the guy who in his first two years made the playoff both years and coached the two Heisman winners. So it's like, man, <laughs> right. I, I just am sort of telling Ohio State fans, it's like, I really like Ryan Day personally. I, I you know, he's I, all the best to Ryan Day and his family and his program, but boy, oh boy, it like you have to, I think just think Ohio State fans have to have a realization that it might not be Lincoln Riley, maybe at least right away, because that guy set the bar really, really high. I just feel like there, you have to at least be prepared for a couple of bumps in the road, and how much will you allow for a nine and three season? Right. I mean, that seems unthinkable that on two levels, unthinkable because we haven't seen that Ohio State in a while, but also unthinkable that that would be a problem. Right. Right. They were actually right. with a new quarterback and a new coach in one of the tough in the toughest division in all of college football. Oops, we went nine and three and then we go, you know, smoke some SEC team in the Outback Bowl. But yet that's in some ways unacceptable. Right. Like there has to be a little room for a hiccup 
that results in not what you're used to, but that doesn't mean that we're going to blow the thing up or we have to panic. And I think that that's where Ohio State fans would be good. It'd be interesting to know how many Ohio State fans live in a world where that's okay. I have used the – Used the phrase nine and three several times uh, this offseason. I think there are some podcast listeners who have wanted to reach through uh, the podcast and strangle me every time I bring up the idea of possibly going nine and three this year. So I'm glad somebody else finally came on this podcast and said, not that it's going to happen, but that it could happen. And that if it does, it's not the end of the world. Um, Ralph Russo, we appreciate your time. We respect your work. We like sitting next to you. When you come to Columbus, like we sit like right next to each other. Like that's I can yeah. tell you, you must have requested. You said, put me next to the most handsome guy in the press box. And boom, you and I have been sitting next to each other for like a decade. Yes. When I come to Columbus, I'm usually in the seat next to you. I appreciate a your handsomeness, uh, B your snark <laughs> uh, and uh, your wealth of knowledge. I always like to be able to tap into you. And generally speaking, if I'm not sure what to write, what to write I just glance at your screen and copy it. <laughs> uh, I'm going to apologize in advance if that gets you fired someday because uh, <laughs> my, my stuff is getting worse. Um, Ralph, thank you so much for your time. Um, I'm sure I will see you down the road. Uh, enjoy the rest of your summer, which is not very long because these uh, conference media days are upon us. Uh, but we really appreciate, appreciate you being on Buckeye Talk. Thanks, Doug. So thanks so much to Ralph Russo for that, for joining us um, for that great conversation. I want to answer a few questions from you guys. Again, before we build up to uh, Big Ten Media Days next week, KJ Hill, Jordan Fuller, Jonathan Cooper representing Ohio State, the three players along with Ryan Day, who will be there. That's always a little window um, into who your captains are going to be and and. I'm sure those three guys will be captains. Ohio State has gone to a world where they have a bunch of captains. It used to be four. Now we're up at six, seven, eight. So I'm sure those guys are going to be in it. Some people are making a big deal about uh, the Big Ten once again, having a lot of the young superstars uh, who aren't going to be there. Ohio State taking three seniors. They're not taking Justin Fields. They're not taking J.K. Dobbins. Listen, it's I mean, it's the way it is. Um, you end up asking... You end up asking the guys there about other people if you don't bring the best players in the league. So Chase Young very well might be the best player in the Big Ten this year, and he's not going to be there. So like, guess who's going to get a lot of questions about Chase Young? Jonathan Cooper. Uh, but he's going to get lots of questions about Chase Young the whole year. He knows the deal. So, you know, it's fine. If you're a good reporter, you find a way to write about what you want to write about, uh, whether the guys are there or not. So um, question – well, not a question. Let's, let's make sure we deal with this first. Mookie Cooper – uh, committed to Ohio State since the last time we had a podcast. Slot receiver uh, from St. Louis. He is the fourth receiver in this class. And um, no shock to anyone that, that Mookie Cooper is in. I didn't like know it ahead of time, but it sure seemed like everybody was predicting that was going to happen. He's the number 64 uh, overall player in the class of 2020, which makes it 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 8 players in the top 100 for Ohio State right now. And they certainly could get uh, two or three more. I would imagine the, the top running back they get certainly is going to be within the top 100 players, I would imagine. So they're going to be represented well in the top 100. Mookie Cooper, the fourth receiver um, in this class, but the first slot guy, 5'8 and a half, 193. I wrote a story last year. I've talked about it here. I, I thought... 
Ohio State had not had a, had a Rondale Moore type of guy. Mookie Cooper is that. It gives them variety at the receiver position. Um, I, I think they got stuck for a couple of years of having a lot of similar dudes uh, in that room. And I think um, Mookie Cooper will give you something that Julian Fleming and Garrett Wilson aren't going to give you. And I think that's very complimentary. The one thing I have had some people ask, um, oh, like, well, who's going to transfer? Who's going to decommit? Because they now have... Uh, four receivers in this class who are ranked as just as prospects, not as receiver prospects, but Julian Fleming's number five player in the country. Mookie Cooper's the number 64 player in the country. G. Scott's the number 66 player in the country. And Jackson Smith Najigba is the number 89 player in the country. I think maybe he moved up from where he used to be. Um, So all their receivers are among the top 100 players in the country. But they have room for this. And so what I did very quickly, you guys, if you, you know, other, other sites have this, I know, but we have it too at cleveland.com. It's our 2019 Ohio State football scholarship chart. And we have all the positions listed by classes, seniors, juniors, sophomores, freshmen, and the commits. So you look and, and you can go by position and you can see how these things break out. And just to look at the receivers right now, KJ Hill, Austin Mack, Ben Victor, CJ Saunders, all seniors, they have no juniors. That's like the Trayvon Grimes class. Like they don't have, right? Trayvon Grimes is 2017, so he should be a junior now. They don't have a guy because like Jalen Harris and Elijah Gardner redshirted. So they're third-year guys, but they're redshirt sophomores. They don't have any juniors. Um, So they have a hole here, which is why they're stocking up on so many young guys. Um, So because next year, they're not going to have any senior receivers. So it's Hill, Mack, Victor, Saunders as the seniors. No juniors. The sophomores are Jalen Harris, Elijah Gardner, and Chris Olave. So that's Chris Olave, who looks like a future star, and two guys who haven't played. Um, So those are your upperclassmen. So that's why they have all this room to do that. You guys probably know that, but I think you know people might be thinking, man, what are they doing? They have to to fill up the room. So when you lose Paris Campbell, Johnny Dixon, and uh, Terry McLaurin, you need to replace them. So there's only... You know, that's that's your top group. Then the freshmen this year, Jalen Gill, Cameron Babb uh, as redshirt freshmen, Garrett Wilson, Jamison Williams as true freshmen, and then you have the recruits. So I looked at 2021, and I did the depth chart. I extrapolated it out. In 2021, the seniors would be Jalen Harris, Elijah Gardner, and Chris Olave. The juniors would be Garrett Wilson, Jamison Williams, Jalen Gill, Cameron Babb. This class will be sophomores. So... Olave could be gone to the NFL by then. You don't know. But there's room for all these guys to play. So I kept Olave at Ohio State for his senior year, which may not happen. Um, but to me, then, you're outside receivers in 2021, which is when these current commits would be in their second year. Because I'm not going to worry about, oh, are they going to get enough playing time as freshmen? Because no matter how good you are, even Garrett Wilson, I mean, like, you can't just coming in and demand that you're going to have all kinds of snaps as a freshman. Nobody should be mad if they're not playing that much as a freshman. But there clearly are opportunities here for these guys in year two. I'm imagining the outside receivers in 2021 would be Chris Olave, Garrett Wilson, Julian Fleming, and G. Scott. Okay, Then your slot guys are Jalen Gill and Mookie Cooper. And then the guys behind them are Jackson Smith and Jigba, uh, Jamison Williams, and Cameron Babb. And Cameron Babb has had three... Uh, knee injuries in the last three years. He's had he had two knee injuries at Ohio State in less than a, less than twelve months apart. 
Um, really unfortunate. That's another super talented guy who just has not had the chance to show anything at Ohio State so far. He redshirted last year with the injury, and now he has had uh, another offseason injury. So the other thing is, we all do this. You guys do it. I do it. We all assume that like everybody who comes here, everything's going to go perfectly. So it's like, oh, they have four top 100 receivers in the same class. There's not going to be room for everybody. It's like, it's not going to go perfectly for all four guys. So it, go ahead and get four um, and really cross your fingers that in terms of injuries, in terms of development, in terms of, of any, of, you know, of, of um, handling your business off the field, you hope everything goes perfectly. But if you don't go four for four, you you have enough room to maneuver. So, you know, you're just going to reach a point where um, and then if Olave is gone, then you're going to be at a point where, you know, they're going to all these guys are going to be playing in year two. That you, all four of those guys, all four of the guys in this class could easily be among the six guys in the receiver in the receiver rotation in their second year on campus. Because it might be them plus Garrett Wilson and Jalen Gill. Um, Jamison Williams is another really talented guy who kind of gets overshadowed by Garrett Wilson sometimes. But, you know, again, there's going to be injuries. There's going to be things that we we can't anticipate. Uh, but I would not look at them adding more receivers and think, well, who are they going to back off of or, or, or who's going to feel like they're getting uh, neglected because they have the room for this. So if you guys want to noodle around with the scholarship chart, just Google uh, Ohio State Scholarship Chart 2019 in Cleveland.com, and you'll find it. And it's just fun because you can really project some stuff. So this is now the uh, 20th recruit in the class of 2020. Listen, I, I had said I thought they were going to go to 24-25. I know Ari Wasserman at The Athletic, our good friend, wrote the other day he thinks they could get to 27. Um, you know, if they go too far over 24 or 25, they're – they're anticipating some guys moving out of the program because they they just there's not natural room for that. And when you go through and you look at um, the seniors and sort of some of the obvious uh, underclassmen who are going to go pro, that's where I get to 24, 25. If you're going to 27, which maybe they will, um, then you're anticipating a couple guys moving out or having injury problems um, and coming off the scholarship chart. So. The one thing I also thought was interesting in terms of looking ahead, um, Albert Breer, who I know listens to this pro- podcast, so a shout out to Albert if he's listening. Great NFL writer uh, at SI.com had a thing the other day where he engaged in an exercise of projecting the top 10 picks for next year's draft right now. And, and he's the kind of guy when he does that, he's not pulling it out of thin air. He's talking to a lot of people in the NFL uh, about that projection. And I think he noted that a year ago um, of his top 10, I think he said six of the top 10 he had a year ago ended up going in the first 13 picks of the draft. So that's pretty good. Um, it's not a 100% uh, conversion rate, but that's pretty darn good. And so the thing that is worth noting is he had Chase Young in his top 10 picks. He had Chase Young as the first non-quarterback off the board. He had Justin Herbert from Oregon and Tua Tonga-Vailoa from Alabama as the top two picks. And he had Chase Young third. And nobody should be surprised by that. But there was another Ohio State player in the top 10 of his draft. And I'll give you a second to guess it. Do, do, do. Think to yourself. Think to yourself. Who could it be? Who might be a top 10 pick? from the 2019 Ohio State Buckeyes. Jeffrey Okuda. 
I think he had him at eight. But the point is that he's talking to people. Jeffrey Okuda profiles as a prototypical NFL quarterback. Albert Breer had him as the number one corner off the board. Um, so I thought that was interesting. I mean, I've been very high on Jeffrey Okuda. Um, and they have a lot of good corners. You should be high on Okuda. You should be high on Arnett. You should be high on Sean Wade. Um, but it's interesting when these national guys who talk to a lot of people um, are making predictions like that. So good luck to Jeffrey Okuda. I think he's going to be a good football player. Couple questions that we didn't get to with Ralph that I want to uh, answer for some people. G Nilly ninety seven, your friend and mine, is Ohio State at a geographical disadvantage to the Southern teams with regard to recruiting enough high end talent to realistically compete for national championships? If so, how have they been able to overcome it the last twenty years, and do you see it becoming harder? Uh, I think he might have, you know, G Nils might have intended that for Ralph as well, but uh, we didn't get to it with Ralph, so I'll answer it. And the answer is, of course. They're at a geographical disadvantage. And and if so, how have they overcome it? Because they're the only one. They are the only one. And this will build into something that I tweeted out to some of the text followers the other day and got some good response on. Ralph and I obviously talked about it a little bit, but but Ohio State is is the lone exception. And I think... I think Notre Dame is – I lumped Notre Dame in uh, at the same tier as Ohio State, and a lot of people push back on that. I'll explain what I mean in a second. But Urban Meyer helped clear the way for Ohio State to be able to compete for players from the South. And the way they have done it – and I've really been thinking about this a lot the last couple of days, and, and uh, it's, it's nothing new, and you guys understand it, and it's – Probably obvious, but I'm not afraid to write obvious stuff. They've done it by going to areas of weakness in the South and Southwest and Far West. They find the local team that's down and they attack that area. And whether that has been Georgia, um, whether that has been the schools in Florida, it was Texas for one year. I feel like they're doing it in St. Louis right now because I think they feel like they, that they have an edge over over. Uh, teams like Missouri and Illinois who are going to recruit St. Louis as a natural geographical recruiting area. They're clearly doing it in Arizona and California right now because they feel like um, there's not a power in the West at their level. So they have done it because they are the one national brand. They have the facilities. They have the tradition. They have the uniforms. They have the branding power. They've been really smart about the branding. And under Urban Meyer, they became an NFL factory. And they were not that under Jim Trestle, at the end of Jim Trestle. It was remarkable um, in some of the Jim Trestle years. And, and I'm, I'm not saying that this is a, a, a failing. It's just that they were winning with a lot of really good football players who ended up not being super high NFL draft picks. So they were not getting eight guys drafted every year at the end of the Jim Trestle era. And now they are doing that now. So... Ohio State has managed to overcome its geographical disadvantage, but it's just that they have to be perfect to do it. And I think you guys know this. This isn't a Homer podcast, um, but in a lot of ways, like when I'm talking about it in that context, Ohio State is the perfect college football program, just in terms of all the things we just talked about. They have everything. The only thing they don't have 
is geography, but they still have a great home state recruiting base in Ohio, far better than any other northern team. Um, you're going to get more players out of Ohio than you will out of Michigan or Pennsylvania. New Jersey recruits great player, or produces great players, but Rutgers uh, can't get out of its own way. But it is a great disadvantage. It's only going to become more of a disadvantage, and Ohio State's going to continue to have to fight to do that. So Ryan Day, um, as much as I've talked about the need to continue to, to recruit some Ohio guys, Ryan Day is walking the line right now of getting some Ohio kids in early but continuing the national recruiting that is required to keep Ohio State at this level because, yes, they are at a disadvantage, and, yes, they are the only team that has found a way to overcome it. Let me uh, let me get check the, check the uh, text thing because um, I want to share with you, and then maybe we could talk about this. Maybe I'll talk about this with some of the people. I want. Hopefully next week I'll have uh, a few uh, reporters on with me from Big Ten Media Days that we can talk about some stuff. Um, but I did this list, and this was based after having the conversation with Ralph about the teams that can win it all. And, and obviously you guys heard Ralph say that he thinks if you have not already won a national championship, you cannot win a future national championship because being established as a powerhouse, which leads to facilities and money um, and national brand, which is so important, you have to have a past already established in order to carry that into the future. I, I made a list of 11 teams that I thought can compete immediately on the top tier um, right now, which means, and my definition of this was their best can win it. Because, for instance, Michigan State's best cannot win a national title because we've seen Michigan State's best. Michigan State's best beat Ohio State in the 2013 uh, Big Ten Championship game. Michigan State's best beat Ohio State in 2015 and got into the playoff. Michigan State's best can get into the playoff. Michigan State's best cannot win a national title. Because as good as that Michigan State team was, they got their doors blown off in the playoff. Iowa's best cannot win a national title. Here are the teams whose best can win a national title. And I guess you know, part of it is can they give their best right now? Maybe not this season, but that they could get to their best in the next year or two. Here's the 11. Clemson, Florida State, Oklahoma, Texas, Ohio State, Notre Dame, Alabama, LSU, Georgia, Florida, USC. Um gotten some really good correspondence from people in the text messages about this. A lot of people have pushed back on Notre Dame uh, because here's my next tier. That's 11 in the top tier. Here's my next tier. Michigan, Penn State, Wisconsin, Miami, Washington, UCLA, Oregon, Texas A&M, and Auburn. And some people have said, well, Auburn has won a national title pretty recently, the Cam Newton national title. They should be higher. I think I looked it up. Auburn's only won I think Auburn has like double-digit wins like once in its last four years. And um, are, are we sure their best can beat Alabama when Alabama at, is at its best? Like like Auburn has gotten through Alabama a couple times before, just like Michigan State's gotten through Ohio State a couple times before. But they had a junior college transfer in Cam Newton who was dropped from the sky who led them to that just in a normal year. Can their best win at all? I would say that they are not at the same level as those other teams. So when you think about that, the only two Northern teams in that top tier are Ohio State and Notre Dame. And some people would say Notre Dame shouldn't be in there. I say Notre Dame is in there and that Michigan's not, in part because Notre Dame doesn't have to get through Ohio State every year, and Michigan does. 
Um, Notre Dame can play a good, solid, tough schedule, not have to worry about a conference championship game, get in the playoff, and then they often have enough NFL players. Although, again, the last time they got there um, in uh, 2012, when people thought the undefeated Ohio State team would have played in the national title game if it wasn't banned, Notre Dame got in that year uh, and and did not stack up to Alabama that year. So maybe you would say, well, no, their best is not good enough. I would say that they barely squeak into that top 11. So my point is, I mean, you just look at that and it's obvious. Your list is 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 maybe slightly different than mine, but it's basically the same deal. It's a, it's a couple teams. It's the top three or four teams in the SEC. Um, it's it's the Oklahoma Texas USC I think need to be in there as the powers in that in those areas of the country, and there's just not many people north of the Mason Dixon line. So um, it's 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 obvious. It's not a new topic of discussion, but it's a reminder that Ohio State occupies a very rare place in the college football hierarchy, and that they uh, stand alone almost in what they are and what they are trying to do. And they absolutely are at a disadvantage. WDK 1921 asked off topic, but why does Cleveland seem to be more associated with Ohio State than Cincinnati? The Cincinnati Inquirer doesn't cover Ohio State with anywhere near the depth that Cleveland.com does. And I feel like the there are way more Buckeyes fans um, that are Browns and Indians fans than Bengals and Reds fans. Any insight? So, uh, I mean, one would be that the, you know, the Cincinnati Inquirer doesn't have me, baby. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. 14 years at Cleveland.com making it. That's, no, I'm just kidding. That's not what it is. Um, I do feel like, so one thing is, as far as I, I, th- I think it's true that the second most number of Ohio State alums outside of Columbus are in Cleveland. There are a lot of Ohio State people in Cleveland. Um, Cleveland is a little more Ohio-y than Cincinnati, right? I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert on this. I didn't grow up in Ohio, uh, but I've lived here for almost 15 years. Um, everybody seems to to, to connect. Um, you know, Cleveland's not going anywhere. Cincinnati is 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 edging off the end of Ohio and, and I think culturally has some um, things in common with, uh, with the, you know, sort of the southern edge of the of the, the country in a different way than uh, that Cleveland's a little more collected, connected to Columbus. I just think there's some geographical and cultural things in place that hook Cleveland and Columbus together a little bit more. I also felt like that Ohio State, and I've said this many times because, you know, we've had great readership and great listenership from our Cleveland.com uh, audience and before that our Cleveland Plain Dealer audience. You know, when the Browns stunk and when the Browns left, Ohio State was your pro football team. So I know the Bengals haven't been great all the time either, but I, I really feel like that that with uh, the historic incompetence of the Browns in the last 20 years, especially during the rise of the internet age and that kind of thing, and I've said many times, it's an exciting time for us at Cleveland.com that the Browns are going to be good because the Browns have never been good during the internet. And the internet changed everything, and so we're excited to see what our Browns coverage can do and what we can do with our Browns coverage because it's never happened before. But Ohio State was good during the entire rise of that. So at Cleveland.com, we leaned into that because our audience wanted it, and I feel like in a lot of ways the Buckeyes were Browns replacements. If the Browns were going to ruin your Sunday, Ohio State at least could lift you up on the other day of the weekend. So um, we have always at Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer – thought of our four sports beats and it's the Indians, the Cavs, the Browns and Ohio state. And we have never 
Uh, we have never done anything except look at the Buckeyes as equal, on equal footing to those three pro teams uh, in the city of Cleveland. You know, the Browns rule everything. But at Cleveland.com, Ohio State, um, during the course of my 14 years covering them, has often been, I feel like, the number two sports beat in terms of uh, general interest from the audience. I think the LeBron Cavs maybe passed Ohio State, but the average Cavs, I feel like, are behind Ohio State. And I think the average Indians are behind Ohio State. And Ohio State's never average. So it's like, that's like one of those things. Oh, if Ohio State was, you know, went through lulls like the three pro sports teams in Cleveland have, have done uh, at various times, what would our Ohio State audience be like? It's like, I don't know, because Ohio State's never going to be that bad. Like, when, if Ohio State has like three straight years of being five and seven, you know, we can have a discussion then of, of how we cover them. But for now, while they're good, they've been such an important part of what we do. And we're just a little different than Cincinnati. And also, I'm awesome. I'm kidding. No, I'm not. Yes, I am. Um, let's see. A couple other questions. Oh, oh, Kyle Brandenburg at Mad Cow Design. Kyle, you ask good questions. We use them a lot. Are we officially in the age of uh, getting recruits to recruit for you? Seems that's a big trend at these camps. Did this always happen or has the growth of the camps and social media just made it more popular? I think it's made it more public um, that guys are, are t- if they're tweeting at each other, um, we can see it. We can see it now. But obviously, just like society is more connected than ever, um, recruiting and recruits are more connected than ever. Uh, just like the friendships that we've seen, you know, with NBA players, guys who grew up together playing AAU ball. Um, but the one thing is that it has happened. It has been going on for a very long time. And I specifically remember how much we talked about the Brew Crew in 2008 with Mike Brewster, who was from Orlando, Florida, and was the center um, in that class and how important he was in pulling that class together. And Mike Brewster was in early. His family was in early on Ohio State, and he was very committed to trying to give Ohio State the best recruiting class in the country. And to do that, they had to cap it off with Terrell Pryor, but they also had J.B. Shugarts and Mike Adams and Devere Posey and Jake Stoneburner and just a tremendous class of dudes. Um, And they had guys in early who were recruiting. And so like right now, um, that matters a lot. And Ohio State does have guys in early who are very invested in trying to make this Ohio State class as good as it can be. Because they want to play with great players. They want guys who are going to help them win. And they do develop friendships at camps. And so Jack Miller and G. Scott and uh, Legend Cavazos and, and a couple of these guys are super active about this and actively recruiting. And as good as Ryan Day is and as good as Brian Hartline is and as good as Larry Johnson is, um, you need players on your side. It helps to have the players on your roster when guys come in for officials. Uh, and you have your current players host those guys, those current players become your best recruiters. Um, But the rest of the time, um, those other high school players, the guys who are verbally committed, can absolutely be some of the best recruiters for you. Rick Ernst will wrap it up here with a final question about the playoff, and I hope you guys enjoyed the playoff discussion. It's a lot of theoretical stuff. There's no great answer. Uh, is a one-loss Big Ten champ ever going to get into the college football playoff, or will the Southern bias continue? So I think it will. Um, I, I believe strongly that having a Big Ten voice in the room um, this year, that Gene Smith is not going to have to be excluded, I think is going to matter a lot. Um, the hard thing is the committee has had this excuse 
with the blowout losses for Ohio State. And like both of the the two years that you would say they got the last two years they got left out, they could point to the blowout losses. And that was the thing. And so, you know, like if we have a one loss Big Ten champ who has a close loss and you have a data point that's more similar to the other champions, then we could, I think, have a better chance at seeing the bias. At the moment, the committee's been able to hang their rationale on that blowout loss. And like, and I, I think we talked about with Ralph, I've always believed that great wins should matter more than bad losses. I do believe that those are connected. The more opportunities that you have for great wins, the more opportunities you have for blowout losses. Because sometimes... When you're playing tough teams every week, you have a lousy week and they merely make you pay for it. You're not going to lose by just a field goal. <clears throat> but Gary Barta, the Iowa athletic director, is the guy who has taken over for Gene Smith. And no offense to Iowa, but they're not going to be in the playoff conversation this year. So that will allow the Big Ten um, to have an athletic director in the room representing the Big Ten because his school will not be competing for one of those top four spots. So I think we will. I think it's been weird. I think it's very uh, reasonable and rational to point to um, twenty. What are we looking at? Twenty seventeen Alabama getting in and twenty fifteen Ohio State not getting in, and see a lot of similarities there. That Alabama sort of eye tested its way in, and Ohio State in twenty fifteen um, passed every eye test in the book. And, and and as much as Ralph and I talked about that, it's not an evolution. It's kind of a scattershot thinking from year to year. I do think it's possible that in a similar scenario, if that 2015 Ohio State team and season played out the exact same way in 2019, I think Ohio State might get in. Now, the one thing about that Ohio State team, and this is the thing that I think is a final point that is not new, but it's worth touching on. All that season in 2015, they had all these games where they didn't look great early. And, and I know Zach Smith is on the Zach Smith podcast. People have been trying me to get me listen. I actually listened, believe it or not, um to a couple minutes the other day of one of them. And um, I also know that Urban Meyer now has a podcast that is also dropping today, and I was going to tell Urban to stay off my block. Uh, Wednesdays is for Buckeye Talk. But, you know, he's pretty famous and powerful, and I'm just a guy in a basement. So I think Urban Meyer can probably drop a podcast whenever he wants to. But at the moment, we now have an Urban Meyer podcast. We have a Zach Smith podcast, and we have a podcast of a guy who just stands around and asks guys like that question. So, you know, I hope you still have time for us. But I did listen a little bit to Zach Smith. Like, I'm, I'm, the urban one, I think, is about leadership and stuff. I don't know how many inside stories he's going to tell. I, I assume he's not going to tell the same kind of inside stories that Zach Smith is telling. But there was some incompetence that was clear to everybody. And again, um, if Zach Smith is throwing Ed Warner under the bus from that, you know, I, I was in that season, within those two years in 2015 and 2016, I was the guy in the news conferences asking Urban Meyer why his offensive coaches were so bad. So Zach Smith can tell a story about it, which is fine. I was asking questions about it in the moment because we all could see it. And the three people I was asking questions about were Ed Warner, Tim Beck, and Zach Smith. Because those, to me, were the three position groups where you could see that they should be better. And so, you know, Michael Thomas was great, and Zach Smith gets some degree of credit for that. But... uh I'm just a dude with a pen in my hand asking questions, and I understand that, that Zach Smith was in the room, but also Zach Smith is saying, well, who he thinks was doing a bad job and is telling inside stories. I don't think Zach Smith was doing a great job at the moment. So um, 
you can listen to Zach, you can listen to us, but I do think uh, that 2015 team, because it was the second year of the playoff, the committee was still feeling its way through. I think they didn't know exactly what to do with that team because you could tell so many players were back from the title team the year before. It was so talented, but yet it wasn't just the three-point loss. It was the, it was the first half of the season where they weren't winning. They weren't really playing. You, the individual talent told you this is one of the four best teams in the country, but the on-field performance and the results didn't tell you that. So... Whenever coaches say, we won, didn't we? Didn't we win? That's no longer a viable answer because winning but not looking good early in the year will absolutely come back and bite you in the butt late in the year when you are being compared to teams with similar resumes. And those committee committee members remember what you looked like every week of the year. And just getting by against inferior competition is not going to cut it. And as much as that Michigan State loss was indefensible, and they could not escape it in the eyes of the committee. If they had steamrolled people for the first 10 weeks before that Michigan State loss, I think the committee would have viewed them differently. And they have only themselves to blame for that. Not the players, it's the coaches. And, and Ed Warner and Tim Beck, I'm always going to say that Tim Beck needed to do a better job in that quarterback room. I always knew that Ed Warner was first among um, the play-calling problems, although anybody who had a hand... Uh, on that offensive staff that year in calling plays. And that includes Warner, Beck, and Urban. Warner's first in line for that. And everybody knew that. He was the play caller. They they changed some stuff and gave Beck some more responsibilities in the middle of the year. But it's like, if we're talking about play calling, yes, I get it. Ed Warner's mostly at fault. But also that quarterback room regressed in 2015. It regressed. And you had a great quarterback coach before, and you had a great quarterback coach after, and the two quarterback coaches surrounding Tim Beck are now the head coaches at Texas and Ohio State. And I know that Tim Beck's the quarterback coach for Tom Herman at Texas, and I get it. But they had a drop-off in quarterback coaching for those two years, and that is absolutely one of the reasons. Even if the quarterbacks say Tim Beck was a great guy, and Cardale Jones has said that, I'm looking at performance, and how are we supposed to judge coaches other than the performance of the guys in their room? And the quarterbacks regressed for two years under Tim Beck. And I know play calling is part of that, but so is the coaching in the room. And by the way, Tim Beck tried to recruit Tristan Wallace, and they had to double back on Dwayne Haskins at the last second because the guy Tim Beck wanted decided to be a receiver. Uh, Anyway, glad we could delve back into that. Appreciate you guys listening. So, Listen to Urban if you'd like. He's famous. Listen to Zach Smith if you'd like. He's Zach Smith. But please continue to make room for Buckeye Talk. Next week it will be late on Thursday. And then we'll come back. We'll have a couple weeks before um, Ohio State's camps get started. But we'll have a lot of fresh fodder to discuss off Big Ten Media Days and exciting times ahead. I will tell you, we are adding to the Ohio State beat which means we will be adding to the podcast. I I talked about it last week, I think. This podcast has evolved, devolved, evolved. Perhaps it's not an evolution. Perhaps it's scattershot, much like the committee itself. But we will have another evolution of this podcast in uh, the next couple months um, before the season. And part of that evolution will be uh, me no longer sitting here talking by myself very often. 
we're going to have uh, multiple Cleveland.com people back on this podcast um, to have a good time. Still bring in guests when warranted, but mostly uh, just goof around in Doug's basement. So thanks to you guys for listening. Thanks to so much, uh, so much to Ralph Russo for joining us from the Associated Press. We'll talk to you guys next week on Thursday. But for now, that was Buckeye Talk. <laughs>